Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing war in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. In our podcast today, legendary veteran journalist Paul Conroy from the front lines in Donbass. Modern warfare is more than traditional battles. Then, to Oleksandr Kovalenko, a leading Ukrainian military analyst. We're here with Paul Conroy, veteran war journalist. And Paul just came back from Donbass, from the Eastern Front. Hi, Paul. Thanks for being here with us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Could you please first fill us in on what's going on around Bakhmut, Chasifyar, Kramatorsk? That's never changed, really. There's, there's constant attacks from where I'm living now in Kramatorsk. Some evenings it's quiet, but most evenings around 10 o'clock, you know, the, the, the shelling picks up the artillery attacks. You can see the rockets going in and out. There's an attempt by the Ukrainian military is to outflank the Russians rather than do a, de- a full-on attack on Bakhmut. The idea is to go around the sides and possibly encircle them. If, if they achieve that, then what it means is they can concentrate on eradicating the, the Russian forces inside Bakhmut without having to go through the through what the Russians did, which was the meat grinder effect. You know, they're, they're much more respectful of the, the lives of the soldiers, so they don't want to risk it by doing a full-on frontal assault. That's the Bakhmut region. What is slightly more worrying is the, the situation between Kupiansk and Liman, that front there. The Russians have apparently moved up to 100,000 troops into position. The aim of that is to, is to prove a distraction for the Ukrainian military in the hope that they have to pull forces off to hold that line. I was up towards Kupiansk with a unit, I won't name them, the other day, and they said while the situation is difficult, you know, they are holding that line. And these are quite new brigades that were formed formed over winter. Um, so this is their first real combat test. But it would seem the line cold, and, and a lot of that depends on the quality of the Russian forces up there. Um, the Russians, in the meantime, are having to rapidly pull units from various front lines and reinforce the defences in where the southern counteroffensive has taken place. If you look at the maps, you can see that there's a real, a real hodgepodge of forces to defend the kind of bulge. And that's generally not a good sign when you see so many units just pulling parts of different units and putting them on the front. It means that, the, you know, they are on the back foot there. Do you think it might be a distraction maneuver to get as many Ukrainian troops over there from the southern? Yeah, area? I think that's that's their intent in the north on that, that Lehman, Lehman Kupiansk line. From what I see, from what I read, that's not happening. You know, the, the, the force they have in position are managing to hold. The good news for the Ukrainians is where they push through that, in that bulge down towards Robertine and the villages down there, they are effectively kind of getting past these so-called sort of line defences. It's difficult and it's bloody, but it's they're showing that it's not impossible. And I think the aim, again, this is speculation from my part, but I think the aim is to get to the, the Tokmark region, which is the higher ground. And if they can take that higher ground, that puts them, that gives them fire control, artillery fire control over the, the main Russian resupply route into Crimea. 
the relevance to that is that the Russians are actually pretty dreadful at resupply. You know, they don't use forklift trucks, they don't use pallets, they use a lot of trains. But everything has to be manhandled off trains, into trucks, and then stored in ammunition dumps, which once you know where them ammunition dumps are, life becomes pretty difficult when you have to resupply troops. Now, if they get fire control over that road, they essentially cut off the supplies, the, the land bridge to Crimea. And this is where the Russians really have problems, because if they also hit the Kersh Bridge, which is the only other real viable resupply route, then come winter, they will have however many troops they have in Crimea, and they have to supply them with food, ammunition, and coming winter, with fuel to, to keep warm. You know, that is a massive logistical nightmare that, quite frankly, the Russians are not really capable of putting off. And now we see, you know, them hitting the naval bases in Crimea. The strategy of the counteroffensive, there's been a lot of Western comment about how it's going slow. I think, given the resources they have, no air power and no very long-range strike missiles, they've done exactly the right thing, is they've harried and harassed the Russian supply routes. And they're hitting them hard in the ammunition dumps. And soon, you know, you're starting to see signs of shell starvation from the Russians, which means their rate of artillery fire in return is slowing down because they simply don't have the shells. And the Ukrainian counter-battery fire is incredibly effective. So if the Russians have to make the decision, bring the guns out, use them, and then be hit by really effective, accurate counter-battery fire. It's so they're degrading the supply routes, the ammunition supplies, and they're taking big toll on their actual individual artillery pieces. As Lieutenant General Ben Hodges said in an interview with me, and it's a multi-domain operation, and, and the comments that we hear that you just have mentioned, they don't take in consideration the complexity of counteroffensive. It's not just the moving forward. It's not just the numbers. It's not just seeing that on the map. But that whole trap situation in Crimea, which of course is a lovely proposition to hear when you are in Ukraine, is being brought up constantly. And the other day you have mentioned that there was an information leaked that the Russians are giving orders for the restaurants and shops back in Crimea to report on their supplies. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, it's quite incredible when you see this letter. That is essentially someone in the Russian um, chain of command going, OK, we realise that our resources, our ability to get resources into Crimea are becoming more limited and are likely to become more limited. So when you start sending mails to, sh to, to hotels saying how much diesel do you have, how much food supplies do you have, I think that can be read as a sign that genuine fear in the high command that them troops are. You know what, my personal guess is that there will be a, a siege of Crimea. That's one of the only weapons they have open at this point in time. The Ukrainian army doesn't have the quantity of troops the Russians can throw at this, but they have, they have an advantage in quality. What is your overall assessment of the situation near Kherson? I think one of the one of the main things is, you know, people see Hassan as being liberated, which it was. But, you know, the immediate response to that liberation was the Russians are now in a position where they sit on the other side of the river and they can sit and pick targets off 
one by one, which they do. And, you know, not, ne- not necessarily military targets. They, you know, one of the aspects of the Russian campaign all the way through this has been civilian terror. They are causing terror in the whole of her some because they can, because they can sit on the other side of the river and fire artillery into residential areas. There are talks about moves across the river and bridgeheads being built, which is indicative that if they're putting the time and effort into crossing the river and and fortifying positions there, that there will at some point be some kind of move in that direction. But again, that's, that's an incredibly difficult thing to pull off, crossing the river. I've been on that river pole and you literally can see the other side and the Russian snipers can see you. Yeah. So that's why for obvious reason this situation and scenario is very difficult. But we will have more on that hopefully next week. And until then, thank you very much, Paul, and talk to you soon. Pleasure. As this is a hybrid war, one of our topics will always be the information warfare. PSYOP is short for psychological operation, which is a term used to describe efforts to influence and manipulate the perceptions, beliefs, emotions, and behaviors through psychological means. These operations can be conducted by governments military organizations, intelligence agencies, or other entities to achieve various objectives, including shaping public opinion, gaining support for policies, discrediting adversaries, or creating confusion and division among targeted populations. In recent years, Russia has constructed a vast network of pro-Kremlin media, online platforms, puppet political parties, paid agents, and quote-unquote useful idiots, with the objective of shaping political landscapes and gaining an upper hand in information warfare. I have discussed uh, these tactics of the hybrid war with Alexander Kovalenko, who is a military political analyst at Information Resistance, a Ukrainian non-governmental project formed in response to Russia's 2014 annexation of Crimea. Information resistance focuses on countering external threats in cyberspace, particularly in military, economic, energy and IT security sectors. For eight years, the group has challenged the information dumps of leading Kremlin propagandists shedding light on the creation of false narratives. This Alexander Kovalenko commenting for Malcontent News Podcast. I have an important message for the Western audience. Watch out for Kremlin PSYOPs. Russians are preparing yet another PSYOP. They promote the narrative that deals with Ukraine's losses during the counteroffensive. The leading platforms for circulating Such reports will be Western, mainly American, as well as a number of various media outlets, warns Alexander Kovalenko. This new PSYOP will focus on two types of narratives. The first narrative will claim that the Ukrainian army has suffered an enormous death toll 
and can no longer proceed with a counteroffensive as all reserves have been exhausted and there are no more human resources left, so the Ukrainian leadership must sit down at the negotiating table as soon as possible. The second narrative focuses on military equipment, explains Kavalenka. The Kremlin will claim that the Ukrainian military has lost almost all the equipment sent by the West due to the lack of operating skills. Consequently, the West must urgently stop supplying weapons to Ukraine, according to this narrative, and once again, Ukraine must engage in negotiations with Russia, according to this logic. As part of this propaganda campaign, the Kremlin propagandists will likely point out that the source of data on Ukrainian losses is President Zelensky. There will be reports citing an unnamed source in the White House who allegedly learned from some personal communication with the Ukrainian leaders that Ukraine lost 100,000 people over the summer. Different speakers will provide different numbers, perhaps The numbers will go up as high as 500,000. Some might claim a million. Who might know? Says Kavalenka. Filter your news and stick to critical thinking. The information war is not just ongoing. It is escalating. The Kremlin's disinformation network remains a significant challenge. Countering these attacks necessitates rigorous information verification and educational efforts to defend against the ongoing threat to global information spaces. You can visit Alexander Kovalenka's social media channels on Twitter, Facebook, and Telegram, and get the commentary from the Malcontent News Podcast. In the middle of Russia's full-scale invasion, over 23,000 Hasidic Jews celebrated Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, in Uman. Coincidentally, Uman is the city of my ancestors. The pilgrims arrived from Israel, the United States, United Kingdom, France, and all over the world. And exactly one year ago, I reported from the Hasidic quarter, where the pilgrims gathered to worship at Rabbi Nachman of Breslov's grave. He was the Breslov Hasidic movement's founder, and first was buried in Uman's local Jewish cemetery in 1810, and later his grave was moved to what now is known as Hasidic quarter. Rabbi Nachman's tradition draws tens of thousands yearly. In 2022, local authorities 
police, Ukrainian military ensured a smooth celebration, wary of Kremlin provocations in support of Putin's denazification narrative. Indeed, Ukrainian media outlet Babel, citing intelligence sources, reported that on September 27, 2022, Russian troops launched Shahid kamikaze drones toward Uman. These acts were allegedly, focus on allegedly, part of Iran's condition for supplying drones to Russia. Israel and Ukraine, recognizing the pilgrimage significance to many, jointly boosted security at border crossings near Uman after weeks of tensions. While municipal roads in and around the city were closed for safety, there were mixed reactions from the local residents. Israel's government allocated aid package for the pilgrimage, and the Israeli Emergency Response Service also increased its presence in Uman. Today, September 15th, at around 5 a.m. in the morning, Iranian Shahid drones initially headed toward Uman, but changed course at the last moment, diverting westward. Notably, the official page of Ukraine's Center for Counter and Disinformation issued a warning cautioning against disinformation spread by Kremlin-connected sources. The Center for Combating Disinformation urged both the global community and Ukrainians to rely solely on verified information sources, emphasizing that the Kremlin's dissemination of such fakes aims to establish an information alibi for potential terrorist attacks within Ukraine's borders. Uman is getting ready for celebration. I would be there reporting, but tonight is the premiere of our documentary film Under Deadly Skies, Eastern Front in Ukraine, in Odessa. And I will be updating you about the developments in our next show. Shana Tova, a happy Jewish New Year if you are celebrating, and stay safe, and thanks for being with us. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.